This podcast was created by CJSW, located on the traditional territories of the Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta, which includes the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Pigani, and Kaina First Nations, the Sutina First Nation, and the Stony Nakoda First Nation, including the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. The city of Calgary is also home to Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. On June 30th, 2022, the night before Canada Day, a panel celebrating racialized Canadians and their history in Canada took place at Calgary's The Grand Theatre. Through conversation and poetry, the MC and the four guest panelists shared their opinions based on their own life experiences of how the traditionally perceived Canadian identity is different for racialized Canadians. The panel looked into how a few factors such as stereotyping and being first generation versus having an extended family lineage can play a role in how Canadian racialized people are perceived by others and themselves. CGSW presents recordings from Identifying Canadians, Canada Day Through the Eyes of BIPOC. The first two panelists of the night were Michelle Robinson and Dr. Gina Coe, and the MC for the event was Mel B. Here she is, introducing the first two panelists. Michelle Robinson, uh, which is her colonial name, uh, Red Thunder Woman, is a Satu Diné mother, a wife, an activist, political organizer, and a podcast host. She's been involved in the political world of the federal, provincial, and municipal levels and was the first uh, First Nations woman to run for Calgary City Council and she ran uh, to be a provincial MLA. She's been a very active volunteer for numerous nonprofit events and organizations, school, uh, schools, community events, and politics at the federal level. And joining us, uh, in addition to Michelle Robinson, is Dr. Gina Coe, who I got to meet a little bit earlier, which I was so grateful for. Dr. Coe is a registered psychologist in Alberta and has a private practice where she sees individuals, couples, and families. She believes in a culturally responsive and socially just way of working collaboratively with clients so that they can be on a journey towards healing and thriving. She is also the producer and host of a podcast, Against the Tides of Racism. So I'd like to welcome both of our panelists uh, to the stage. Please give them a round of applause. We too rarely hear the history of BIPOC communities from our own perspectives, which challenge the Eurocentric history of the nation we now know as Canada. Even to this day, Canada is uncritically celebrated by millions of Canadians in spite of growing calls from Indigenous peoples that we reconsider what is truly being celebrated on this day. Canada was constructed on the lands inhabited by more than 630 First Nations representing over 50 nations. Canada Day celebrations are even more painful this year after over 1,100 children have been found on the sites of residential schools. And you'll notice that uh, some of us uh, today in the event are wearing orange uh, specifically in honor of those, of those children. We're here this evening to think critically about the nation and our place within it. And so I'd like to uh, start with, uh, I'd like to start with you, Michelle. How do you feel when you see the Canadian flag? It hurts. There's just no nice way to say it. Um, Canadians don't understand what that symbol represents. And what it means is 
Hitler won. That's what it means to me. And I, I've said that before many times. I'll continue to say it. If Germany won, then the swastika would be all over. And that's what the Canadian flag is to me. It's the equivalent to a swastika because it's people proud of genocide. That's what that symbolizes. It's people proud to take over the lands of other people. So it's a painful symbol to me. I know for many um, indigenous, it's taken a long time to get here to be able to say those words. And uh, I was just recently at the CBE's public meeting, and I'm gonna say that in quotes, public. And um, they start with O Canada. And of course, everybody stood for the singing of O Canada, even my allies, and I just couldn't. I can't do it. I cannot stand for genocide. So to me, that symbol is of genocide. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that, Michelle. And I, I think it's so important that, like, that this is that this is the the spirit with which we're opening the event tonight. Because as we know, the celebrations are going to uh, happen tomorrow, and I'm so grateful that we get to actually have this conversation and talk about that, talk about that symbol. Fireworks and all. <laughs> so we not just celebrate, but we do it with fireworks. So it's not just um, dead indigenous people, it's children, it's babies. Um, it's the buffalo. Somebody shared a great picture of buffalo and how many herds there were. Like so much has been destroyed so that white folks from Britain could come here and raise cows and chickens. Like that's, and, and grain, and canola, and all the other things. And it, it's just incredible to me how, as we as Canadians, just accept that. that. That that's okay, it's okay. We totally came in here and stole people's lands and completely decimated populations that were natural to this area. And now we're in a moment of climate change and ironically, they think starting their own organizations is somehow gonna solve it when, if they would just look to Indigenous, allow Indigenous to lead, implement the United Nations Declaration of Rights of Indigenous People, we would solve climate change. But we can't have Indigenous in charge because they're not human. So what they've created is something called the Sustainable Development Goals as a, as a way to be like, well, at least we're in charge of that and we don't have to give it back to Indigenous and we don't have to, uh, we call it UNDRIP, the United Nations Declaration of Rights of Indigenous People. We don't have to uh, implement that if we just continue the genocide. And I say that because our people are dying. Our people are dying of opioid crisis. Our people are dying of um, imposed poverty nationally. These are issues that are, are so prevalent in healthcare. Our people are dying disproportionately because of racism within healthcare. The justice system already has the stats of overrepresentation. Um, the social services have not changed. They still apprehend our children. This is literally why I got political, was because here I was thinking I was living my best care in life, and when I went to give birth, my baby was red flagged because my Indian Act Imposed Status Card is federal jurisdiction and red flagged in the system. So there's a lot of levels that we have to really be honest about, and we're not even talking about Indian residential schools and all of the unmarked graves yet, right? We're just talking about just what has been done and what everybody's so proud of, and they have like, I am proud to be Canadian tattoos, all sorts of things, so, yeah. Thank you. Can we all like just hold space for Michelle for that moment and just thank you so much for, for that, Michelle. 
Doctor. I got to represent my people. Are <laughs> <laughs> you doing it proudly? Are you doing it proudly? Yeah, we could give a round of applause to that. Yes. The same question to you, Dr. Ko. How do you feel when you see the Canadian flag? Thank you for the question. I want to preface. I want to preface myself by locating who I am and and where I was originally. Um, my homeland is. So I came to Canada as a refugee uh, with my family from Vietnam in the late 1970s. In fact, I was. It was my birthday. I was two years old, and we escaped on the boat to Malaysia. We was in a refugee camp for about six months, and then we came to Canada. So, um, growing up. I did not learn about indigenous history. I did not learn about Indian residential schools. Um, it was very, still today, a very Eurocentric curriculum. So um, beginning last year, I, I, I am done celebrating Canada Day. I'm not going out, you know, with, when you said fireworks in the Hamishal, it doesn't make sense to me. This event is very meaningful to me because other stories need to be told. Other voices need to be heard. So when I see, I just saw it today actually, a car passing by with lots of Canada flags, I, I, I'm not pleased and it's, it's not okay. So as a, as a therapist, as a psychologist, I see a lot of racialized clients in my practice now, uh, predominantly Asian clients. Um, and you know, there is this myth uh, predominantly in North America, maybe other parts of the world where Asians are the modern minority. You know, we come to Canada, we work hard, we put our heads down, we are quiet, inferior, submissive, right? So, um, and I think a term like that also needs to be challenged in Canada. It needs to be troubled. Absolutely. It needs to be not just accepted. And uh, because it divides people, you know, when a stereotype like that, right, is divisive. So from my perspective, um, I also, when I was my, in my early 20s, I taught in a First Nations community with Little Red River Cree Nation. Michelle, I love how you acknowledge, did the land acknowledgement. When I was younger, I was very nervous about land acknowledgement. I was afraid of making mistakes. I was afraid of not doing it right. However, now that I have you know, reflected and, and learned and unlearned, these acknowledgements are so important that it comes from from the heart. So when I was teaching up north, I'm very embarrassed to say that I did not know at all anything about Indian residential schools. And um, my the community would come to me and say, the parents and grandparents and say, Gina, I'm so sorry. We don't force our, we don't make our children come to school because it's a violent place for us. And then they were started to educate me and, uh, and thinking back, how embarrassing that was, that I wasn't taught growing up the, 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 the true history of Canada. And the, but the community was amazing. They embraced me. Um, I actually, I cut my students' hair. I invited them to my home. We baked and we talked and we read and we, you know, we did a lot of things that we can't do here <laughs> in, in, in Calgary together. And I learned a lot from them and with them. My one regret is that I didn't pick up a lot Cree, I can say a few words, like Tansi. Tansi means hello, I believe. So, um, sorry for my long response. Uh, so when I see <laughs> no, the Canada flag, so a lot of these, these moments come up for me, so. Thank you, Dr. Ko. And I guess I wanna follow that question up with, what are some of the histories 
that, and this is open to, to both of you, that you, that you would like to see highlighted or that you felt have been left out of the conversation in terms of the colonial history of, the, of these lands? My auntie, I have many aunts and uncles on my indigenous side, but one of my Dene uncles married a, a Chinese woman. And so I, I always think it's really important that I mention um, a lot about July 1st being the anniversary of the Chinese head tax. And because of that, a lot of the Chinese community have never celebrated that. And I learned that on TikTok. Why did I learn that on TikTok? So when we talk about what should be included, we should all know that fact, and it should have been taught to us by our teachers, and we should have understood that, and I didn't learn that from my teachers or the education system in any capacity. So it's really hard for me to be like, yeah, I wanna talk about the Indian Act, I wanna talk about um, all of the issues that have come across for our people. I wanna talk about Indian hospitals, I wanna talk about sterilization, I wanna talk about missing and murdered indigenous and exploited peoples. I wanna talk about the foster care system, I wanna talk about racism, but I, I, I need to be honest about that answer. And I also need to be honest about saying, um, thanks to the, the most recent Black Lives Matter movement, I literally grew up with NWA. I grew up seeing Rodney King getting beaten. And yet it took this movement for me to really address my anti-blackness. I knew it was in the media, but it, it was in me too. Because we are raised with white supremacy in our schools, in our media, in everything. And so we internalize that even if we don't want to. That stereotype that you were talking about, that's in me too. We have to unlearn it. Even as an indigenous person, I have to unlearn the racism I was taught by colonialism. So when you say these histories, there's so much that we need to include in that. And even heritage minutes that are new, I'm like, why am I learning about an indigenous athlete from World War I on a heritage moment now mm -hmm. in 2022? <laughs> and yourself, Dr. Ko? So I, I mentioned there earlier how, you know, being raised in a Eurocentric you know, colonial curriculum, um, I, as I am you know, getting older, I am not a historian, not at all. I, however, I am thirsting for, for knowledge. I'm thirsting for more from, again, other voices that have been silenced. Um, my, my daughter, she's 16 now, and a few months ago, um, uh, some youth, racialized youth, youth were invited by Mayor Gondek to talk about how to make Calgary an anti-racist city. And she and her peers were do, uh, doing some brainstorming and they came up with, we need the education system to be anti-racist uh, anti and anti-oppressive. Um, it has to be, uh, you know, uh, the, I'm laughing because she said, I'm tired of learning and reading books from white men. That's what she said. Um, she was very brave. And she's, you know, the, the history of, like, I, I'm so glad you brought that up, Michelle, you know, like how the, the Chinese came, you know, to build the railway. There was this huge head tax that was uh, so, so racist. And, you know, nowadays you can, it was it's a lot of money. And they did not, you know, after the railway was done, they did not want more Chinese to come. And in fact, when, uh, you know, when some of them were, were in our country, uh, in, in Canada, um, the children were called yellow peril, you know, or like dirty and go back to, go, go back to your country. 
I don't recall learning that at school. Right. That's, I don't recall learning that at school at all. Um, so again, you know, whose, whose voices are still privileged today, right? So, and we need to continue to question that. We need to be critical thinkers. We need to be um, always asking questions that can be uncomfortable. It can be challenging and it can be unpopular. However, we need to. So that kind of brings me to, uh, to, my, next, to my next question. It's gonna be a little bit of a fraught one. Can we reframe Canada Day as a day to address the colonial history of the celebration, or should we celebrate it at all? You know, um, a lot of folks in my circle are, are putting out things saying, wear orange tomorrow, and you're wearing orange, and folks in this room are wearing orange, and last year people were wearing orange, and I honestly think um, people, Canadians, with empathy are realizing I, I can't celebrate this without acknowledging this, without wearing that orange. So to me, I think we're just doing it organically, where it's like, you know, until we do the truth part, until we do the reconciliation part, we will not be proud Canadians. And I, I don't mean to speak for everybody, but I think that everybody collectively knows that until the curriculum is brought up to speed where we're talking about everybody, and not just one demographic of people written by white men, until we're there, we're gonna see Orange for Canada Day for a long time, until politicians are brave enough to actually do the work, change that curriculum, start changing some policies all across the board, and it's at every order of government, not just one. And I think that's another problem, is that we have a really disengaged group of um, citizens, and they say, Things like, you know, Ottawa's way over there. Um, Justin should be doing that. But then they never look inside and they never look at who they're voting for. And the Conservative Party has never had clean drinking water as part of their platform. Truth and reconciliation, an up-to-date curriculum, none of that stuff. And we are in the heart of this. So we can do that change here. So I think we have a lot more power than we know. And I'll say one other thing. Um, a lot of indigenous people globally are exploited because of the decisions made in these buildings right here. We, the citizens, have a lot more power to change that. So if we don't want to hear about Colombians and Guatemalans being murdered by Shell Canada, we have a responsibility to say, uncle, you work for Shell, so this is an issue. We are right here, we're so privileged to do that and we don't even know our own power here. So the citizens here need to be empowered. I absolutely agree with you, Michelle. Um, it's the leaders, it's the, the people who are making decisions, right, uh, for us, making decisions um, that does not benefit everyone, not, not every group, so absolutely. Um, I, I, I loved what you said about we individually can also make you know, a difference, can, can influence and can impact. So um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk a little bit about, about my, my podcast. I started my podcast, Against the Tides of Racism, uh, last year. And a part of that journey uh, is because of the, first of all, the anti-Asian racism that has been exacerbated by this pandemic. People who look Asian are racially profiled or spit on, kicked, you know, the, murdered, um, mi microaggressions, all of it, right? And then, and then, 
in the States, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and, and the Black Lives Matter movement. In fact, last year I was uh, downtown here uh, for the vigil for, for George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. It was, it was really incredible to see the diversity of people that was at the park. It actually, it, it actually really touched me. So because people care. People are, you know, are, when we stand in solidarity, you know, when we can, can even, even um, sometimes we think, oh, is that really important? Is that, is that a, a gesture? You know, anything that, uh, you know, when we talk about solidarity, um, anything is something, right? I, I also agree, though, that we need to go beyond performative, just performance. Oh, here's our policy. Here's our, you know, here's what we are trying to do. What, what are you really doing? What kind of action? What, you know, are, what about representation? You know, what, what about racialized, you know, and in, in women who are uh, really, really supported, right, to, to, to run for office, to be in leadership roles, and, and not just, um, we encourage you, here's a quota we meet, but how, how are they being supported? How is Canada Day different um, for an indigenous, person from from your perspective and the perspective of somebody who has immigrated here as a refugee because there is often this this narrative of people coming to Canada for a better life and there is this kind of opposition that's put on newcomers to to this nation and indigenous people so I guess I think I really would love to hear from both of you how you see that how you see that playing out? How do you see that in your own perspective? So here's a fun fact about Michelle Robinson. I'm also a daughter of the Mayflower. Here's the thing. There's a bigger picture, a completely different worldview of the land and everything. We are meant to share. Prior to colonialism, lots of people from all around the world came to Canada. Lots of people from all around the world came to North America. And we broke bread, and we shared, and we traded, and they went back, or they continued on their way. That was just life. There are stories of indigenous people that went traveling, too. There used to be kind treaties. We we're used to coexisting together. We don't own the land. We share the land. But Canada, colonialism, that's owning the land. And that has changed everything. And that's caused climate change. It's caused all the problems you see at the borders of like, oh, you can't come here. All of these things. So to, to folks who like legitimately immigrated or are refugees here, legitimately our people wanted to share the land with you, want to share the economy with you, want to share together. But it's never been that way. The Indian Act was imposed on us. We were forced to go to these tiny little res reserves. You know, our complete way of life was decimated. We were, I'm speaking to you in English instead of Blackfoot, all these things, right? Acknowledged. Uh, so these are, like there's that bigger picture. If you are from somewhere else, you are welcome here to indigenous people. We just wanted to make treaty with you. Just wanted to live equally. So, so let's start there with, with how it used to be. And that's the way I think indigenous people, they don't have revenge. I do, but they don't. <laughs> um, I just want to add a little bit, Michelle. I know we're running out of time. I learned from my podcast guests that w when um, uh, 
during the building of the, the railway, when uh, the Chinese men are down and really ill and almost dying, it was the indigenous people that nursed them back to health. We are only allowed in Chinese restaurants. My visits were in Chinese restaurants. Like there, there's always been that together with the Chinese community. That's all I want to say right now. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I guess I want to follow up with you a little bit, Michelle, on the idea of reparations. Can you speak to that? How do you, how do you kind of see that uh, potentially unfolding? I see about 94 calls to action and 231 calls to justice. Reparations. <laughs> you know, let's start there and continue on. Yeah. Yeah, I want to ask, oh, this is like a question that's, that's really close to, to my heart and I think really central to this event. Um, and that question is, what is your experience of yourself as a racialized person in Canada? Because there is a distinction between the Canadian experience as a white person and then one as a racialized person. So I'm curious from, from both of you, I know you kind of touched it in different ways, but I wanted to frame it in a more direct way so that we can really think about that and tie that to the, to the spirit and theme of the event tonight. Um, I just think it's really fair to say too, as a woman, I think we have a very different experience than men. Like just point blank, let's start there too. And I think uh, gendered violence is a real issue. So for the LGBTQ2 plus community, uh, to my two spirit, two LGBTQ community, I started it the other way, so I'm trying to relearn my acronym. Um, but I, I think it's really important that we acknowledge the amount of violence that has been imposed on any like gendered violence in general. So I think we have to start there. And I say in my podcast, my name is Michelle Robinson, because that name gets me here. If my name was uh, Red Thunder Woman, if my name was said in an indigenous language, I likely would not be here. That is, that's the experience in Canada. So we've started already by the name. My name has determined my experience already. And, I, and I, we could elaborate on that, but I don't want to take too much space there. Speaking of names, brilliant. Michelle, um, I, recently, I recently found some documents. My name is Gina Ko. However, my, name, my given name was not Gina Ko. So my Cantonese name is Go K Fong. So my, my name was actually K Fong Ko when I came to Canada. So my mom and my aunties all have their stories where they'll go to school to learn English and they will say, your name's hard, too difficult to pronounce. My mom's name is Lan. Can everyone say Lan? <laughs> so it's not that difficult to, 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 um, to pronounce. Now her name is Connie. Did I get it right, Lan back? Did I get it right? <laughs> yeah. Just kidding. Ow! <laughs> <laughs> and her name is Connie. It's one more syllable. So, so anyhow, um, uh, okay. So I just want to um, also acknowledge intersectionality, which, which you're talking about, Michelle, where... Yep, there's there are you know groups in our society who are marginalized, who are oppressed, who you know who are very much power have less power and have less voice. So I did talk about the video. I know we're running out of time, so I want to uh, share what I said in the video. So my experiences in Canada: racism, diversity, and hope. That's what I said in my video. Racism growing up, you know, being othered. You brought stinky food for lunch. You know, ew, what are you eating? And then I told my auntie and my mom, don't pack me fried rice and spring rolls and just give me dry, just sandwiches, which I often didn't eat. 
So that's just one, one example. Um, and then many examples, oh, one more, one more. My teacher would knock on my desk and say, uh, English only, when I'm speaking some Cantonese with my friends in class. After that moment, that was a defining moment for me because I became ashamed of my language. I became, I would whisper Cantonese in, in, the, in, at the, in the playground with, in case I'd get in trouble again, um, which is, we know, with the language genocide and cultural genocide with the Indian residential schools. And so, um, and I also included diversity because I, 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 do, I am, I am very appreciative of all the, um, people, racialized people, that diversity of people I have met in my life in Canada. I know that without being in Canada, I would not be, you know, getting to know um, such uh, diverse, you know, people from different backgrounds. And, and the hope is actually right now, we're having this conversation. So I have one more question for, uh, for you both um, before we get into the next, uh, the next performance. What ultimately is your hope for for tomorrow what is your hope for this for this for this nation in my smudge one of the things that we always acknowledge is the next generations and um and i had a kid so it's like really present for me knowing that if we don't make this world better she has to go through everything i went through and i don't want that for her i don't want that for anyone and i certainly don't want it for the next generations and just kind of to your point about the food. My little girl, they had a multicultural day and everybody brought their food and little Ben, who is uh, Vietnamese, brought the best Vietnamese food ever, but he was ashamed of it and you could tell. And I tried to tell him, you don't understand, I pay good money to go to restaurants that taste like this and it's better than that. So I tried, but you could just tell there was, he, it was too late. He was already shamed. So the next generation is already feeling that shame. And I hear the stories from our youth. I seen the black kids go in front of the city or from the, the police station and take a knee. So us as adults, we should not be creating a world that our youth have to do that. That's not okay. We have a responsibility as adults to stop this right now. No black kid should ever feel ashamed ever, ever, ever. My daughter grew up with a, a little guy and he had tried to commit suicide at the grade four. Like this world we are, are in right now is so white supremacist that little boys who are black want to kill themselves. Indigenous people are disproportionately committing that final act. And we have to stop this racism. The guide is there. The indigenous have done your work for you. Call to Action 57 is anti-racism training, indigenous education for all public servants. It's in everything. It's in the 231 calls to justice. We have done your work for you. Literally, voters, wake up and do the work. Vote, hold your politicians accountable. Hold all orders to government accountable, your sports clubs, everything. Hold them all accountable, because you're not, so they get away with this. And you, Dr. Cole. I wholeheartedly agree, and, and truth. To, we, we need to know the truth. So, um, I, I, I'm, of course, I'm still learning, and I'm still unlearning, and, and Canada Day tomorrow, we need to continue to, to learn, to unlearn, to, to know the truth, to ask questions, to continue to be curious, and to continue to, to be yeah, very critical of, of leaders, of... Um, people who dismiss racism, 
people who, are say, who would say, get over it. You know, it's a long time ago. It's history. It is not. It is not history. You've been listening to CJSW 90.9 FM's recordings from the event titled Identifying Canadians, Canada Day Through the Eyes of BIPOC. For the full episode and more original podcasts and talk show series, visit cjsw.com and click on the podcast tab. Following the first panel, there were spoken word and poetry performances from the remaining two panelists, a lot of poetry and quay. Here's the MC and LB introducing the first of the performances. So a lot of poetry has been a spoken word featured artist and performer all over Calgary, including at the Arts Commons cabarets. Uh, one of them was We Gonna Be All Right, uh, which is one of the first times I got to showcase this artist. Uh, she was the November 2019 Calgary Slam champion and was also um, working for the Workland School of Education uh, Decolonizing Literacy Workshop. Her poetry has been published in the YYC Pop Anthology by Poet Laureate uh, at the time, Sherry D. Wilson, and she's exhibited at Gallery uh, 501 in Edmonton. She is a featured poet in the Dogwood Reading Series, the Stage to Page Workshops, and the 2021 Afro-Indie Book Fair and the Emancipation Day Celebration hosted by the official BLM Calgary. As a believer of self-truth, and her experiences as a black immigrant woman. Sharing her anxiety, pain, laughter, and love, she aims to build a community that encourages everyone to love themselves and be unapologetic about it. Everybody, please welcome a lot of poetry to the stage. Um, yeah, so this poem just kind of emphasizes that it takes nothing away from Canadians to put Indigenous people at the forefront of what they do as Canadians. It doesn't take anything away from us to help other people gain the rights and respect that they deserve. In a world where we are constantly changing, evolving, constantly shifting with the Earth's movements, we are moving to define ourselves with each moment that passes. And for me, there is one thing that will never change. I don't just love being black. I love being Nigerian. I love being African. I love being an African woman. I love that I get to learn about my own culture. I love that our culture is endless. Looking back at the past and seeing how we constantly rise, even when it seems like the world is determined to sit on us until we yield, we are born from perseverance. So many of us are here right now because we know what our truth is. Our people have instilled in us how to take our own happiness. When they try to take you down, you grab hold and let them know that you don't know what giving up is. I am born from strength of my parents and their parents who had to build a home taken over by people that would have rather seen them broken. When I remember the very first time I stepped onto my homeland, Nigeria, I felt a sense of calm, a peace I had never felt before. I felt the energy of my people who will never say die. I heard the heartache of our people who were forced to leave, to survive, a country torn apart by colonial rule, corrupt governments who are only tools. So I applaud our people that had no choice but to fly through their own skies. I cried the tears of the ones who were taken. I mourn the ones who will never see it, and I hurt for the ones who will never see it again. I took in the lands, I felt the humid air, 
the water droplets that added a glow to my skin, the heat that liberated my soul. I felt the energy of my people still there. I felt happiness. I grew up in a place that did not know my lineage, moving from house to house, so jealous of the kids who could find family history in theirs, being able to draw a string to different places where their great-great-grandparents built their legacies. Then I think of my parents who had to leave home due to their fears, leaving their place of comfort due to becoming colonial collateral damage because sometimes leaving the one place that you love the most is the only solution that you can manage. So when I say that I am Nigerian, I carry a piece of their home with me, never ashamed of my identity, of our legacy, music that will never fail to make you move. Food so delicious you feel like you could never be full, clothing so vibrant that whenever I wear it, I feel like I am reborn. The aroma of jollof rice, reaching your lungs, making your taste buds dance and sing, recipes passed down from our grandparents who not all of us got to know. But I know we are in their hearts. We are their hope, which can be a heavy thing to carry on your back, I know. So I have to remind myself to stand tall, search for my own joy, but not at the expense of others. Your identity is something you don't have to let the world destroy. Your identity is not something you have to sacrifice to fit in with a culture made up from a puzzle created from stolen pieces. Home can mean so many things, where you were born, where you grew up, where you finally felt safe. A home where you can be surrounded by things that bring back memories, that make you smile. And home is also the place where your soul is grounded, your family is synonymous with the earth, a place that you will always be connected to by spirit. There is something calling to me, something I cannot touch, no matter my nationality, no matter where I move, there is a home that I will never be able to deny, my ancestry, my roots. What was planted and watered by the blood in my veins that creates my eyes, my bones, my hair, my taste. So this place that so many people call home is a place where its people aren't safe. Where its people have nowhere to run. Where its people were the ones the country was supposed to protect first. A place I'm supposed to call home because of a passport, a stolen privilege given to me by a piece of paper. So this country will never sit right with me. Canada is its own confused persona, comparing itself to its southern cousin when its agenda is just hidden a little bit better. When the governor gave me my certificate and said, welcome home, I felt no joy, only a relief, because now my family and I can finally breathe. There are people here that I love, but when I think of home, it is not here, and I cannot pretend that I don't sleep on the bones of people whose children cease to breathe when those fireworks go off on the 1st of July and the burnt ambers find their way to the ground. It is just another reminder of the light they do not grow up to see. So I cannot pretend that it is here where I feel safest, when I don't know if I am human or black first. I know it's not here where I can say I am fully accepted. I know it is here where I feel the most different. I know it is not here where I had to force myself to relearn that I was actually beautiful 
here where I feel the most out of place because multicultural is just a label to save face. There are still so many spaces where I find myself making myself smaller to fit in with a status quo that I would rather still comply. Be grateful, be still. And so when I look at myself in the mirror and I see everything that I love about myself, Canada cannot claim any peace. My laugh, my smile, my eyes, my heart, my soul, my pride, my skin. So if you ask me who I am, I will never say Canadian. I never will. Thank you. Let's give it up one more time for a lot of poetry. That was incredible. So our next performer, um, Aquilung Quay Degal, is a multi-hyphenated artist. From poetry to music to art to videos, he finds passions in many outlets. He plans to focus more on the music in the next few years, knowing he has something to say. Born in a South Sudanese household, Quay was taught to put family first. Hearing their stories of survival in the refugee camps and life back in Sudan, in South Sudan, motivated him to create the best possible life here. A nomad by default, Quay grew up seeing all sides of Canada. 12, year, 12 schools and 12 years of schooling has taught him many valuable lessons. Can we give a incredible, raucous round of applause for Quay? So this is a poem I wrote around a year or two ago. Um, I think it portrays the experience of a dark-skinned man in North America. Black, our skin we have, it's dangerous if untapped. Our golden-coated DNA woven together like sacred artifacts, the stifled potential we have is unmatched. Tall shoulders for the number of stripes we've earned. Plump lips show our sharp tongues can strike lungs and every room we have our heads turned. And our women possess auras more tantalizing than the average Becky. Go Google the definition of divine feminine. It's disingenuous if you don't acknowledge that elegance, eloquent, no matter how they're represented. Masters of love even after the world labeled them irrelevant. Together, we are the movers and the shakers, the ceiling and record breakers. Our diaspora kinda sorta rules the world. I am black and I am proud of it, but I've had to learn both of those things. So often the melanated are manipulated to infuse their identity with inferiority, loving any and everything that did not come from a black being with no second guesses. Self-hatred isn't new, it was all of our first lessons. Kings and queens perceived as black outcasts, but my generation was born to change that. This is the golden era where we can all carry on dead legacies like pallbearers. A Malcolm X fuels my heart, captivated by an MLK. Influenced by Rosa Parks, I sit where I want today. Because of them, we can take base, Kenny Loft. Return serve, Serena Will. Give back like Bron Bron, pull a prize like Kay Lamar. Oh no, we don't just entertain. We have thrived in every essence. Tupac to Barack, change lives with every sentence. Speak up like Ali, and if they take us to the stand, Maya Lu, move the people using words, not hands. So if you haven't already understood, to be black 
is to do what we always have done and what we always will do. They may write us down in history with their bitter, twisted lies. They may chart us in the very dirt, but still, like dust, we will rise. Let's give another round of applause to Quay. So I'd like to bring back to the stage a lot of poetry and Quay for our second panel on immigration. And so Tola, you kind of answered this already, but I would, uh, I would like to hear it uh, from you. What is your national and ethnic identity? Um, so my family is Nigerian, like throughout, and I was born and raised in South Africa. And I guess I'm Canadian or whatever. You don't have to say it if you don't, if you don't feel it. That's what this panel is all about. <laughs> and yourself, Quay? Um, I was born and raised in Canada, but my family came here all born in South Sudan, some born in Kenya in a refugee camp. So they were never told me to say Canadian. <laughs> like they always said, yo, say yourself, say you're from South Sudan. So growing up, I always said I'm South Sudanese. But like understanding that I was born here, I kind of have to agree that I have national identity Canadian. So say both those things. What has your experience been of Canada, of this place? Um, so I was born in Vancouver. I moved, moved around a lot, so, but 10, 12 years was in Vancouver. It was funny, actually. Like, in Vancouver, there's not many black people, especially back in the day. There's a lot more now. But growing up there, it was always, like, you'd always get the question, like, why are you black? Or like, why are your hands that color? Or, um, like, a, yeah, those, those type of questions. So it was always, it was a balance between, like, like, going home and telling your parents these things or telling your siblings these things and telling you, hey, you know, it's okay. And then going out, and then like nobody really understands you. Um, but moving to different places, like London, Ontario, there's a big Jamaican population there. So when I was still in elementary school, I went there, and I was kind of like, oh, okay, um, you know, there's 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 an acceptance here. It's not it's not the uh, the experience that colored my perception in Vancouver. So I've had many experiences, but it, I've seen it, it's it's vast. Vast. To sum it up, um, I'll give you that. I'll even give it a word. Interesting. Interesting for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. What about yourself, Tola? Um, I would say mine has been, um, for lack of a better word, a little traumatizing. Um, I think, like, especially because I, I went to, I mean, I went to UFC, which is like a predominantly white. Um, institution and I studied kinesiology, graduated y'all, and then <laughs> and which is a predominantly white faculty. And so I didn't, I was the only black person like most of my class, in all my classes, up until maybe like fifth year. And um it wasn't it wasn't great. Um it's it's especially when things like each class would usually have, you know, like the the, the racism chapter about race the race and ethnicity. And so when that always came up, like, you you know, you can always feel like all eyes on me, like, oh, Tala's going to have an opinion about this. And sometimes I did not want to say my opinion because there's so many people in that room ready to argue with you and you don't have 
you don't have that energy. And so, um, yeah, and it's it's been ever since ever since I moved here, like before I, even I moved here, I said to myself, you know, I'm going to reject everything about Canada because I, I already hate it. I hate it already. And but as soon as like you get here, it's like you you still want you don't want to be alone. Like you still wanna still wanna fit in. You still wanna do what everyone else is doing. You still wanna have fun. You still wanna live your life. Um, you don't wanna live like live being negative. But like you know, microaggression after microaggression, every day, all the time. You have to watch what you're saying. Um, I lost a couple friends in first year because they said that they didn't like how angry I got at something. And they were like, we just we just don't like that energy and we just can't be a friend anymore. And I was like, oh, okay, cool, 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 cool. And so when people, when I tell people where I'm from, I'm like, oh, I'm Nigerian and I was raised in South Africa. The first thing they actually say, which is really funny, is they say, oh, like I heard that place is like super dangerous, like the crime, hey? And I'm like, yeah. But then most people don't know that, you know, the first time I was punched in the face was by a white Canadian man from Manitoba. So I, to me, I was like, I, I, this place is dangerous to me. So, but then they'll be like, no, but not everyone is like that. I'm like, okay, but I'm telling you what happened. So that doesn't help me. I was still punched in the face by a white Canadian man from Manitoba. Um, as soon as I got here, so I was like, like seven months in. So it's like, it's like, I... I've never felt that Canada was trying to be um, this nice persona that I, I used to grew up with on TV watching. It's like Canadian, um, Americans were bad, Canadians were good. Like that was literally like the whole thing. And so when I got here, I was very disillusioned, very fast. Um, so yeah, that's been my experience, yeah. I'm curious for for you both, what has been, what has been the pressures that you've that you felt to to fit this narrative of gratitude, right? Because often when people immigrate to Canada, there's this there's this kind of racist expectation that you'll simply be grateful, you know, for uh, for coming to Canada or for for being here, which is really steeped in and rooted in in white supremacy. So I guess I'm curious um, from from your perspective, Tola, how how have you kind of dealt with that with that pressure? Um, I don't think I've dealt with the pressure very well, because um, um, like my parents, like they came from, they went to Nigeria, from, went to South Africa from Nigeria, because Nigeria was obviously messed up from colonialism, so they came to South Africa because it was supposed to be better. Um, but the indigenous South Africans are also very much uh, traumatized from colonialism because they just kind of got independence like in 1994, which is like yesterday. Um, so it's still fresh for them. So the internalized racism in South Africa has manifested as xenophobia because they would pit, you know, black people against each other. So they would think like, oh, foreigners are trying to take our jobs for the South Africans. So my family didn't feel safe. So we came to Canada. And I know how hard like my parents like worked to come to Canada, even though like me and my siblings, we didn't want to be here. Um, but like my dad spent so much time away from us to get us here. My mom worked so hard to like get us here. They worked so hard to like get us through university and all those things. And it's like, how can you not be grateful? And then I just think about like, like where I would be if I was still at home. Like, I, like, I mean, I don't know where I'd be if I was still at home, but I know certain things I wouldn't have had to experience if I wasn't here. Um, so, I mean, dealing with the pressure, it's, it's, you feel like every day you need to be doing your best to um, make your parents' lives easier because they moved here to make your life easier. So it's like there's kind of like a guilt that comes with kind of just like 
resisting that and then but then you also re- you want to make your parents happy because you know you love them they worked hard for you they spent their lives trying to you know you know make things better for you so it's like how can you be resisting this place that they sacrificed to get you to so um dealing with the pre- I'll let you know once I've dealt with the pressure because I have not <laughs> <laughs> thank you Tom no it's tough um my sister always tells me she tells me stories about the refugee camp. Like, it wasn't, wasn't fun at all. We easily could have been a family that wasn't chosen to, you know, to get papers and to come here. And, like, there's, like, it's a guilt. It's, like, survivor's guilt. It's, like, why us? You know what I mean? I easily could have been stayed in South Sudan in a village, you know, chilling. But, you know, we're here now. And, yeah, my sister tells me, my mother tells me, my dad tells me, like, use the opportunities that's given to you. But it's also, like, like for me, right, I, uh, I went to two schools, two universities. I got a diploma from Nate, but me, I don't really agree with the school as an institution, but then it's like, okay, why are you here? Like, why do we come here for you? So like, I understand that for sure, but yeah, you don't necessarily have your own life. It's like you came here for a reason. You came here for a purpose. So it's tough. There's a lot of pressure. Even like, even pursuing creative activities. It's like it's, it seems selfish, you know what I mean? The pressure is hard to deal with. I haven't deal with, I haven't dealt with it either. Yeah, I want to like just like add to that as well. It's like mm. you have to be constantly proving yourself that you deserve all the sacrifices that have been made for you. So it's like you have to like keep proving that you're a good Canadian, like keep proving that you're a good child, like keep proving that you deserve to be here, that that you deserve the money that was spent on you, the time that was spent on you. Um, because they've done all these things for you. The country has done so much for you. They brought you here. They accepted you. They gave but you how citizenship. How do you feel about those, um, like even that, even that concept of, mm. you know, needing to be needing to be good or needing to be a good Canadian? Because you are you are here. You are like this this idea of borders and and like that people need to earn their right to be somewhere. I think it's a really I think it's a really flawed one, and I think it's one that that white Canadians don't don't deal with and don't feel a pressure to deal with. And so I'll frame that as a question of, you know, the the pressure to to feel like you have to be this this presentation, I think that's really deeply rooted in in white supremacy and how and I guess how do we how do we challenge that? How do we push back on this on this expectation that we have to prove that we that we should be here on lands that are actually stolen like how do we push back against these narratives because i think they're actually they're actually quite harmful i think one of the main ways um would be like saying outward especially because it's been said so much to me and then um when people say like you know well without colonization you wouldn't be here you wouldn't have internet like i think i would have been good without internet i I mean i wouldn't have known what i was missing you can't really you know know if you've never had it but it's like knowing that you don't owe Canada or whatever colonial, you don't owe them anything because all these places where refugees come from, where other places that aren't safe, all that stuff, people have to leave their countries because of the influences of colonialism. We wouldn't have to go anywhere if colonialism didn't jack it up in the first place. Mm. Round of applause, yes. That is it. That is it. 
There's a lot of globalized places back home. Like I could have went to Rwanda, Uganda, Kenya, even like they still have Wi-Fi, you know, highways and all of that. <laughs> it's still there, but um, I guess it's just perception. Because even back home, it's like because of colonialism, they think, oh, over here the West is better, the West is this, the West is that. Like, but other than that, the the pressure that we have here, at the end of the day, is just lines on the ground. You know what I mean? There's no, there's no identity, identity or achievements that we have to get or uphold to, you know, to earn to be here. I guess it's just, it's just put on us by other people. One more question um, for um, for you both, and my question. I always like to kind of bring it into bring it into hope. And what is what is your hope for the next generation of? Of, of young people, of, of young black people who are living in Canada or who are coming to Canada, what is your hope for them? I'll go first. Um, understanding that you don't necessarily need to see, like for myself, right? I, I thought I couldn't do certain things because I didn't see people like me doing it. In the West, they're not gonna necessarily allow that or let's say promote that. So. I'll say, like, use the opportunity that's given to you because it is a great opportunity. Use that to create your future because yeah, it's right in front of you. I would say, like, my hope, I guess, for the youth, um, wherever they are, um, even if they're, like, born and raised Canadian, I would say kind of just, like, it's okay for you to discover more of who you are outside of being Canadian. Like it's okay for you to like discover like whether what what whatever what national ethnicity you are, if you're like white, if you're black, if you're and literally anything. Like like there there is a hole that's filled when you find out more about who you are. Like that like so when people question the Canadian identity, you don't have to get so defensive because in the end, like Canada is it's 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 kind of a made up identity. Your national like the national hockey it was taken from indigenous people, and then when indigenous people wanted to play, the kids get racial slurs like like that doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense. So it's like so for me, I just hope that the youth, like the future youth, just kind of find themselves outside of this colonial this this persona. Um, like they don't you don't have to describe to everything that being a Canadian is. Like, it's okay for you to discover who you are and be Canadian at the same time. For you to, like, be look beyond beyond what was created at the expense of so many people and the ongoing genocide and all that. Like, it's, it's okay. It's okay to be more than Canadian. That's it. That's me. Thank you so much. Let's give a big round of applause to our panelists. A lot of poetry and quay. Following, redefining, and assimilating into the Canadian identity have been consistent themes for the panelists and is a topic that many BIPOC Canadians may relate to. The panelists' stories and opinions on growing up in Canada show that the experience can be vastly different depending on an individual's cultural background and the surrounding influences that may affect their lives. One commonly used adage is that ignorance is bliss, and based on what we've heard from this panel, the focus for the future should be on addressing the problematic history and current shortcomings of our country in order to increase our national awareness, with the hopes of preventing the cycle of hatred we're currently perpetuating. A special thank you to the MC and all four of the panelists and performers who participated in the event for sharing their stories and allowing CJSW to come and record their answers for this podcast. 
For links to hear and learn more from the guests, check the show's description on cgsw.com under the podcast tab. This has been CGSW 90.9 FM's recordings from the event titled Identifying Canadians, Canada Day Through the Eyes of BIPOC. Thank you so much for listening.